number 317 will be the invitation song this morning after the lesson. Number 317. It's a blessing to be here on such a beautiful morning. Had some rain showers, some storms moved through last night, and uh, woke this morning to a beautiful day. Thank you so much for being with us. And I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Titus, chapter 2. Titus, chapter 2. Wholesome teaching for godly living. Um, back in 2015, I presented a lesson from this text. The focus was on verses 11 through 15, though, and emphasized the need for grace, and what saving grace really is. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, Titus is told, and we are told by the Apostle Paul in verse 11 of this chapter. And one of the things that we emphasize in that study is that grace has requirements of us. It demands certain things of us. And verses 12, and 11, and 12 through 15 make that very clear that those who are saved by God's grace are required to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And in verses 1 through 10, he's talking about how this godly living manifests itself in those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, what we will see are qualities for sound godly living which have a direct bearing on the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is giving Titus instructions on how to set things that are lacking in order. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul talks about how he had left Titus in Crete for this very purpose, that he would set in order things that are lacking. And one of the first things that he was told to do is appoint elders in every church, in every city. And then he talks about the qualifications for elders and the importance of elders and he emphasizes the danger of false teaching. And really what we have in chapter 2 and verse 1 is a transition from the rebuke and the exposure of these false teachers in verses 10 through 15 or 16 in chapter 1 to what now Titus is supposed to be doing, and that is presenting wholesome teaching so that Christians can be healthy, spiritually alive and healthy. In verse 1, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, and incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing good, all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Wholesome teaching for godly living. 
which does again have a direct bearing on the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This concept of sound doctrine is one that is prevalent in the epistles that Paul wrote to both Timothy and Titus. In fact, this term sound appears five times in this little short epistle of Titus. And it emphasizes the need to be healthy or to be right as far as the spiritual things being taught are concerned. In fact, Thayer defines this term as to be well, to be good in health. Metaphorically, is used of one whose Christian opinions are free from any admixture of error. Now that's very important. It's talking about, when you speak of sound doctrine, you're talking about teaching that is without any error, without anything that will cause spiritual disease or sickness. Which, of course, again, is just the opposite of what you find in chapter 1 in verses 10 down through verse 16. Those whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. These false teachers were everywhere. So in opposition to the false teachers, you teach words that are wholesome, that are sound, that will bring about spiritual health. Lunida defines this term to be correct in one's views with the implication of such a state being positively valued, to be correct, to be sound, to be accurate. Rebuke them sharply that they might be correct in their faith. Well, are we so intent on sound doctrine? Listen. A lot of people have this idea, this concept, that doctrine really doesn't matter. There's really not that big a deal regarding correctness in what you believe, as long as you're sincere. That's not the biblical position at all. The biblical position is constantly emphasizing the soundness, the correctness, the accuracy of what is believed and what is taught. Sound doctrine is in contrast with the many false teachings that are out there. And these false teachings are dangerous. They are destructive, both individually and to the church. And they must be exposed, they must be rebuked, and they must be corrected. And the only way to do that is through sound teaching. This sound doctrine is more than theological accuracy. Now, it is very important that we understand that we know who God is. Theology has to do with teaching regarding God Himself, His nature, His purpose, His work. When we study theology, we're studying the teaching of the Bible about God Himself. Now, that's very important. Because if we have a misconception of who God is, you've heard me say this many times, if you have a misconception of who God is, you are then going to be... Uh, wrong in many of the things you apply to your daily life. Our misconceptions of God, many people are led away to all kinds of crazy ideas that are contrary to the Scripture because it begins with a misconception of God. Let me give you an example of that. Someone focuses on the love of God and they talk about how God is so loving, He's so kind. The consequence of their focus upon God's love and excluding other characteristics and the nature of God, 
will come to a faulty conclusion. They'll come to believe that God will not punish anyone. That no one is going to hell. Now, that is a result of a false concept about God Himself. And a doctrine then, a teaching that is practical to us, is then formulated to support and to be and is based upon their false concept of God Himself. So doctrine is more, though, than just theological. It is also practical. The Bible teaches us how to live to please God. We're taught who God is. We're taught His nature, His character, what He wants from us as far as our worship and our service to Him, but He's also told us how we're to live in our everyday life. It's practical. And so Paul gives us very practical instruction. This isn't just mere advice, by the way. These are the instructions in how to live a godly life. Sound doctrine is essential to living godly. And, of course, if we live godly, we will also be harmonious in our inner relationships. We will be influential to those that are around us. We will present the gospel as it is attractive to others. Uh, we will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, right? And we're to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Sound doctrine is essential to godly living. And that then will also have a bearing on those around us. First, Paul tells Titus to teach the older men to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, and love in patience. And really, he had already talked about the qualities or the qualifications of elders back in verses 5 through 9, which many of these things are listed there as well. But okay, he says to tell the older men to be sober. The word sober literally means to be restrained or temperate. It has to do with um, not partaking in alcoholic beverages. That's really the literal application of it. But it has a spiritual application also in that you abstain from things that will control you, that will disrupt your life and your service to God. In other words, you need to be focused on the things that are spiritual. And not to be uh, drunk with the things of this world. You're to be clear-headed. Older men are to be clear-headed, thinking about the things that are spiritual, rather than the things that are carnal, that are material. To be sober. That, of course, requires self-control. It's akin to what Paul, or what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, where he talks about being holy, the need to be holy, we are to be sober-minded, reverent. When we use the word reverent, we think of you know, our approach to God. And certainly that is included in this idea, but literally it means to be dignified, befitting behavior and implying dignity and respect. Last Sunday evening in our lesson on Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we talked about how when we come into the house of God, we must show reverence. There is a right way to behave when you approach God. You cannot approach God flippantly. 
You cannot approach God uh, with your own ideas, your own thoughts, and your own ways. To approach God, you have to be humble and submissive in your approach to Him, trusting in His will, His way. Reverend has the idea of having a proper decorum about oneself in which he demonstrates by his life, by his words and deeds, that which is right and good in character. Reverend. Then the word temperate is used. The older men be sober, reverent, temperate. Uh, we think of temperance tip, being temperate, temperate as more to do with alcohol sometimes, but that's not the idea here. It has the idea of being self-controlling. In fact, the ESV renders it that way, self-control. To be of sound mind, avoidance of extremes and careful consideration for responsible action, Arnton Gingrich says. Not impulsive, not easily angered. You know, it's, it's, it's sometimes easy to become upset when people do you wrong. But when it comes to living a Christian and godly life, we have to be restrained in our responses. We have to hold back our, our desires in the moment of the heat of battle, if you will. Not to be easily angered, not to be impulsive, not to wear your feelings on your sleeve, but to be a sound mind controlling your reactions and your response. To be temperate. And then the term sound faith. To be correct in one's view and what, and what one believes. To be accurate in what he believes and teaches. And I, I believe that the word faith here is more objective than subjective in that it is what we are to be believing. We are to be sound or accurate. That's the same word that we talked about earlier. Be correct in our view and our understanding of God and of His teaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans ten seventeen says. So we are to be accurate in that and to be correct in our views and understanding. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul there says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from, from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So you've got this holding on to what you have been taught and holding the correct view. And that's up to us. We have to search out and study to find out that which is true and correct. He says, Sound in faith, in love, in patience. And the idea of being sound in faith is then also applied to the concept of love. Sound in faith, sound in love, sound in patience. Having a correct love. Is it possible to love the wrong things? Is it possible to have our values misplaced? Well, sure it is. And so the idea here is to be sound in your love, having a sincere appreciation and high regard for the right things and for other people, those whom you are duty-bound to love, to have correct values and affections. 
I am to love. No question about that. Mark 12 and verse 29, though, says that I am to love God first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, with all thy strength. For this is the greatest commandment. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as yourself. Putting God first, putting others ahead of even ourselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 8, Paul there defines love. And he talks about the importance of love in our life. We are to value the right things, and whatever we do, if it's not with love, is worthless. But love certainly has a characteristic of really being positive and uplifting and encouraging to others. Love trusts, love believes, love supports those things that are right and good and wholesome. It does not rejoice in sin and iniquity, but in what is right and what is true. So our love must be right. And if we love one another, then all the world will see that and understand that we are indeed Christ's disciples. John 13, 35. But love. We're to be sound in our love. We're to be sound in patience. The word patience means to bear up under. To persevere. To endure. To endure under difficult circumstances. To withstand the onslaught of evil that is brought against us. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul speaks there of himself. In verse 6 he says this, Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your it is for you, uh, for your consolation and salvation. So Paul is saying, look, we are suffering, we are being inflicted, so that you also can endure with us the same suffering because of your faith. And so the older men are instructed to be sober, clear-headed, reverent. They are to be doing what's right and being honorable, respectful in their behavior. Temperate, self-controlled. They are to be sound in their faith, believe the truth. They're to be sound in their love. They're to love God above everything else and then love others, love the things that are good and right and endure. They're to be patient. So, okay, those are some instructions for old men. You know, Paul is not saying everything that an old man is supposed to be engaged in and the characteristics that he is to have, but he is giving some very important ones, isn't he? Older men, what about us? Are we sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience? And how serious do we take these things? Paul then turns his attention to older women. The older women likewise. The word likewise means in like manner. And many of the characteristics, listen, are gender uh, non-particular, non-specific. I mean, they apply to both, right? Women also are to have the qualifications that were spoken of previously to the men. They're to be sober-minded. They're to be temperate, self-controlled. They're to be sound in their faith and their love and their patience. But he goes on and he says that women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, similar to what he told the men from Harold. Really, though, there's an added sense to this particular word 
It's from the Greek term heros, which means sacred, and the adjectival form of prepo, which denotes suited to sacred character. So he's saying that women are to be reverent in behavior. They're to be holy and set apart for God's service and God's purpose, which is suited for his work. That which is befitting in persons' actions or, or things is consecrated to God. So a godly woman is to behave in a manner that becomes godliness. Okay? We think about modesty. We think about a woman who is projecting a godly attitude by the things that she wears, by the things that she says. She is projecting a godly attitude. And a negative, then, not slanderers. Interesting, this term slanderers comes from the Greek word diabolos. Who knows what that word diabolos means? That's the word for the devil. Slanderer. That's the devil. Diabolos. And so, me, not diabolos. Not devil. Right? Really, not slanderers. False accusers, not false accusers, not malicious gossips, the NASB translates this. And there are other passages also that emphasize the, the need for women not to engage in such behavior. Women are not to be slanderers in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, patient, in all, or faithful in all things. That's the wives of an elder. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 3 talks about some of the wickedness that will be taking place in the latter times. He says, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers. Be careful what you say about others. Slanderers, speaking evil of others, falsely accusing them. Not given to much wine. The literal concept here is not to be enslaved to much wine. Not to be a slave to, the ESV translates this. Not to be addicted to, the NIV. Uh, the idea is not to be given, not to be addicted, enslaved to, not brought under bondage to. And so prohibition of addiction is what we find here. Not to be a drunkard. Not to be an alcoholic. Okay? But it's interesting, some say, well, that means that she can drink a little wine. Well, that's not what it means. It's kind of like uh, when John says, I write these things so that you sin not, in 1 John 2 and verse 2. Verses one and, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It wasn't saying that, you know, you can sin a little when he talked about in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 that we've all sinned. And he's not pro permitting that. But then he, where he says, but if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Doesn't mean that we can sin a little. That's not what he means. And when we are told not to sin, you know, doesn't mean that we can sin a little, does it? Well, of course not. Um, even more, what if, uh, what if I said... 
that you should not be addicted to heroin. Does that mean a little heroin is all right? No, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that a little heroin is okay. It's not giving permission to use wine, but it is a prohibition and a warning regarding the potential and the danger of being overcome by wine. And I can give you one sure way to never become an alcoholic. You want to know what it is? Never take the first drink. Don't do it. I guarantee you, you will not become an alcoholic if you follow that advice. In fact, there are many passages that warn of moderate use of alcohol. Proverbs 23, verses 29 through 35, when you see the wine moving about in the cup, that is when it becomes alcoholic, when it becomes a beverage that will make you drunk, the wise man says, don't look at it. Ephesians 5 and verse 18 also says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we have the idea, the opposite of being filled with wine is to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the things that are good and holy and right and godly. The things that are spiritual. Paul then says, Teachers of good things. Likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine. Teachers of good things things. Women are to be teachers. Had a call on the radio program, uh, it's been a while back, by a fellow here in Little Rock that wanted to argue that women are not to be teachers at all. Now, where do you get that from? So I took him to Titus chapter 2 and verse 3 and um, he didn't have much to say about that, but teachers, we need women teachers. We talked about this in Bible class this morning. We need women to teach our children, yes. that we, we, I think, understand that. Women are naturally more nurturing and better for younger children. and We need women teachers. Women need to be teachers. But as I also pointed out in Bible class this morning, we have a shortage of women teachers in the body of Christ to teach women too. You know, we, women need to be taught. Women need to be taught how to be good wives and good mothers. They need to be taught how to be a godly woman. The qualities and characteristics of godliness needs to be taught. And I'll tell you, men can teach. Men can teach women that we can tell them what the Bible says. But women can teach women because they know. Godly women can more effectively teach women than godly men. Because they have insights that a man simply cannot have. It's impossible. I can't teach you how to be a godly woman from the standpoint of experience and insight. All I can do is tell you what the Bible says. So we need godly women to teach. And Paul then goes on, he turns his attention to that responsibility. He says that women, younger women, are to be taught by the older women how to love their husbands. I had a lady one time that came to me and some of the other men in Pine Bluff. And she was determined to divorce her husband. 
Her husband had been verbally abusive for years. And at least that was her story. And so she was determined to divorce him. And of course, the question that we had was, well, has she been unfaithful? Or has he been unfaithful? And she said, no. No, he's just verbally abusive and I'm tired of it. And, And he had not been a Christian the whole time that they'd been married. And he had just obeyed the gospel just a few months earlier. He had become a Christian. Apparently they were having some problems and perhaps that that led him to, to becoming a Christian. But he had become a Christian and he had began to, to learn and to grow. And now she has decided, now that he has become a Christian, she wants a divorce. Well, we told her that she couldn't get a divorce and she said, you know, I don't, I don't understand that. She says, she said, I, I, I have a... You know, I have been putting up with this all these years. And she said, I'm just sick of it. And I said, I I remember saying to her specifically, I said, the Bible says that you're to love your husband. She says, the Bible does not say any such thing. Well, I took her to this passage. And she says, well, the word there is not agape. The word there is philandros, which is not love. (laughs) Well... Actually, it is not the word agape, that is true, but it is love nonetheless because the emphasis is upon the due benevolence and the support and the devotion that is to be given to the husband. It is a practical application of agape in that you value your husband enough that you yield, you submit, and you provide the things that he needs. That's what that word means. Anyway, to finish the story, the woman uh, didn't find what she was wanting from us, so she came up to, went up to Conway and found a preacher up there that told her it was okay to divorce her husband if that's what she really wanted to do. So she did. She divorced him, and she moved up to northwest Arkansas. Sad story. And that's what happens when we reject the teaching of Scripture. To love their husbands, to provide the things that are needed by him, The wife is to be the completion of her husband. She is to provide those things. And to care and be concerned about his needs. To love her children. This is another compound Greek term. Phileo, which is brotherly love or natural love. And technon, children. Having affection for one's own offspring is the idea. Sin destroys our what ought to be our natural response is we would think, how is it possible for a woman not to love her own children? A lot of women, a lot of women these days do not have that natural love that they ought to have for their children. That's why we have so many abortions. One reason. They don't care. Sin in their life has destroyed what ought to be a natural affection. Paul talks about that in Romans 1.31. Those who should have a natural affection that they don't have. Love is manifested first and foremost by the directing of our children towards the Lord. To teach our children the things of God. The, the wife, the mother, has, has a responsibility to her children. To teach them. Just like the man in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 3 to bring up his children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, I take that to be inclusive of the wife's working as well. 
She has a responsibility in that. You go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. It's the parents who have that responsibility. The husband is to be the head of the house. The wife, though, she is a participant in that teaching. To love her children. To be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Discreet comes from a Greek word, sophron, which means of sound mind, self-control. It's the same word that we found earlier in chapter 2 and verse 2 regarding the old men. They are to be discreet, self-controlled, sensible, moderate in one's behavior. Sober-minded is the idea. Women are to be sober-minded. So are men. How about that? We're to think clearly. To be chaste. The word chaste is from a Greek word hagnos. That is being without moral defect or blemish and hence pure. It is connected with hagios, which means holy. Sanctified. And so it is without a moral defect, without blemish. It's pure. It's used in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. As a chaste virgin, the, the church being a chaste virgin prepared for Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, a, our chaste conduct, or the chaste conduct of the women that Peter is writing to in 1 Peter chapter 3. Their conduct is to be, be pure. They are to dress with moderation. And so, you know, here it is now, the temperature is getting warmer. And what many young women do is they take off their clothes. Right? And they parade about in the malls and Walmart and up and down the street in skimpy clothes. And that's not chaste behavior. That is not modest behavior. So, be clothed, be pure, be holy. Your, both words and deeds and clothing should represent godly character. Homemakers. Working at home, literally. As in 1 Timothy 2, 10 through 15, manage the house. Not saying that women cannot work outside the home. Proverbs chapter 31, we have an industrious woman who is working both inside the home and outside the home. And she's being praised for that. The Bible does not require that women stay at home and cannot work outside that home. But the emphasis is to be on the home. Women, are their responsibility, primary responsibility is the house. And I don't mean the walls, the mortar, the bricks, the wood, the sheetrock. I'm talking about the people, the husband and the children, and the needs of that house. Her responsibility is to the home. And one of the things, one of the biggest problems in our country today, one of the things that's causing us trouble is that women have forsaken the home. They have forsaken their children. They've turned their duties and responsibilities over to daycares. They've turned their responsibilities over to schools. They've turned their responsibilities over to other people. And they have ignored their duty and responsibility to teach their children and to bring them up, to train them, and to take care of their husband and to provide the needs of the family and thus setting in motion the disintegration of the family. Again, not saying she can't work outside the home, but she cannot, whatever she does outside the home, cannot take away from her responsibilities within the home. 
She's to be good, useful, benevolent, beneficial, resulting in good deeds for others. Like Tabitha. There's a great example in Acts 9, verses 36 and 39. Good, obedient to their own husbands. Primarily a military term to rank under. You know, a woman is not any less value than a man. As far as their soul is concerned, they're equal. As far as their being human, they're equal. They're equally, equally, you know, valuable in the sight of God. But as far as their rank, their positional authority is concerned... The husband is placed by God himself above the woman. 1 Corinthians 11.3 The wives are to submit to their own husbands. Listen, here's a very important point to husbands. You cannot force your wife's submission. This is something she has to give willingly. You cannot force it. You cannot impose it. She has to give it. This is something that she has to do. She has to submit to your authority. That authority should be primarily and fundamentally out of love and concern for her. Like Jesus is concerned for the church. He loved it so much that he gave himself for it. We are to love our wives so much that we're willing to give anything for her pleasure, for her, for her good and her well-being. And the wife then is to also submit and be supportive of her husband. And when love is present, and love is what is primarily the connection between them, the, that proper value and relationship, then everything will work like it should. Selfishness will get in the way and destroy those things. But we need to be looking out for the best interests of one another. That the Word of God may be may not be blasphemed. Uh, the cause to give occasion for others to speak contemptuously of God or of sacred things. The Jews were guilty of this in Romans chapter 2 verse 24. They would condemn the Gentiles of being adulterers and fornicators. Sinners, right? Ungodly sinners. And then Paul points out in chapter 2 verses 1 and 2, he says... How can you condemn them when you do the same thing? You're just as guilty. And then he points out in chapter 2 and verse 24 that you have given the Gentiles cause or reason, opportunity to blaspheme God's way. Whenever we fail to live according to sound doctrine, we give the enemy occasion to speak reproachfully against Christ and against his people. And Christ himself is damaged by our ungodliness. Do we think like that? Do we realize that when we sin, we don't sin in a vacuum, but we sin, and no, people notice that. And it brings reproach upon the church and upon Christ himself. We should never minimize the harm that is done by our, our own ungodly deeds and recognize the travesty that... that is brought about because of our sin. So, young men, and I know, I see we're out of time. Young men, be sober-minded. All the other things that were said to older men would also apply. 
But young men are in particular danger of being led astray with the cares of this world. You need to be very careful. Showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Sober-minded, busy doing what's right. And Titus must fit within this classification because Titus is grouped in with these young men. Showing yourself to be an example, in other words. You live in such a way that you will help these young men to live a godly life, just like in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12, as Paul told Timothy. In doctrine, public teaching, our public teaching, our doctrine is to be characterized by integrity, our sincerity, by our reverence, that is dignity, just like uh, the previous time we've, times we looked at this concept of reverence, with one little twist. The idea here also has the concept of gravity added to it. That is, it's serious business. And we approach the doctrine of Christ seriously. Incorruptibility. The state of not being subject to decay. And sound speech. Again, that which is correct and right and not open to just rebuke. In other words, our speech needs to be such that people cannot find fault with what we say when examined under the scrutiny of the evidence. If people really listen to what we say, they will find out that it is the truth when they examine the evidence. Paul warns against providing ammunition for unbelievers. Sound speech that cannot be condemned that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, not having evil, not having, having, having nothing evil to say of you. So Paul again warns uh, against providing ammunition for our unbelieving opponents. And it's far better for them to be ashamed. When they do engage you and they are put to shame by the truth, then they will be hopefully ashamed and turn to the truth. Of course, sadly, that will not be the case for many. They will continue their attacks, but they will ignore the truth that you say. And they will attack you personally. That is far too common. All who have taught the truth and who practice the truth will find this reaction to the truth by those around us. People are going to talk about you, persecute you, Regardless. So you need to make sure that you're right in how you speak and how you live. And even bond servants, slaves, made up a significant portion of the, of the congregations in those days. And Paul listed five qualities that were to characterize these Christians. To be obedient to their own masters. To be submissive. To be well-pleasing in all things. You always do what's right. You can't control how other people treat you. But you can always control how you respond. And you're to always respond with kindness. You're always to, to re respond with goodness. You're supposed to always do good. Not answering back. Not being argumentative. But you are humble. Submissive. Not stealing. Not taking advantage of opportunities to take what is not rightfully yours. But showing all good fidelity. Being trustworthy. Adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. 
Now, my friend, if slaves were instructed to behave like this, how much more us today in our society as it is, yes, there are some bad bosses out there. There are some cruel taskmasters, if you will. And the reality is we are still to be humble, to be positive, to be faithful, to be reliable, to be godly in all that we do. This is godly living. God's grace is provided for all of us. We can be saved by God's grace, but God's grace requires that we turn away from sin and from the world and live godly lives. That we apply the teachings of God to our lives. And God's grace requires that we live holy lives, set apart for God's service. God's grace gives us hope. You go down to verse 13. And it's talking about the glory that we have and that we hope for, the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the hope that we have. And that gives us the motivation to live a godly life. Because if we don't live that godly life, Jesus, when He comes again, it's not going to be a good thing for us. So we need to live this this wholesome, godly life. God's grace equips us to be zealous as God's special people. We are His, and we need to live like it. We need to live like it in all of our relationships so that we can glorify God in how we live. Salvation is rather simple in the Bible as far as what we must do to be saved. There is such a thing as wholesome or sound doctrine. And that's what we find in the Bible. We must hear the truth. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We must confess Him before men. We must repent of our sins and we must repent and also turn to the Lord. We must be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of our sins. And then we must continue to live according to the sound teaching of Christ. To live in such a way that brings Him glory and honor. Because the day will come when we will be judged by His words, John 12, 48. He will judge us by His words, by His teaching. Are we living and striving to live according to these sound teachings, the doctrine of Christ? Maybe this morning you're here, you need to obey the gospel, whatever your need is. Please come while we stand, while we sing.